You're listening to a message from Every Nation GTA. For more information, please visit our website at everynationgta.org. Hey, good morning. Welcome again to Every Nation, Greater Toronto Area. My name's Sheila, if we haven't met, and it's my turn. I'm, I'm excited to be continuing the series we've been in this summer, Restore My Soul, where we have been looking at uh, Psalm 23 in depth, verse by verse during this sermon series. Before we get to reading the psalm, let me tell you a bit of a story here. So our oldest son <coughs> played high school football while we were living in Tennessee. Now, high school football in the southern U.S. is a um, it's a big deal. And uh, I do like sports, but football was never, never one of my favorites. So in all honesty, I didn't know a whole lot about it. Um, I didn't actually know that there was any strategy or that there were certain plays you did at certain times or uh, that there really was a plan or what on earth they were doing in those huddles. So until quite a number of years later, every Friday night watching our son play football. Well, shepherds, how does that tie in? Well, shepherds, my knowledge of shepherds with their sheep is a lot the same. And so I've been learning a lot as I've been preparing and reading um, to speak during this sermon series. And uh, really, I thought the shepherd spent the summer just wandering mindlessly, maybe following his sheep around, maybe sometimes leading them. I did not know that a good shepherd has a plan. And a good shepherd prepares the way for his sheep and goes before them. And we're going to see some of that today as we look at Psalm 23. So let's read our psalm. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. Surely, goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Today, the fifth verse, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. We're going to look at this verse by looking at three words. And the title that I chose today, just the one word title, was the word sustenance. So we're going to look at how he sustains us looking at three words. He sustains us with a table. He sustains us with oil. And he sustains us with a cup. He sustains us. Well, here's a quote I loved. God often uses material things to speak to us about spiritual things. And here God uses three things that we can touch and handle a table, oil, and a cup to communicate how he sustains us. First, he sustains us. A 
at a table. You know, the good shepherd actually goes before us. He goes before me, my shepherd goes before me, and he prepares a table. Here's something I learned about actual shepherds from Philip Keller's book that we've looked at some through this series called uh, Shepherd Looks at um, Psalm 23. And he wrote this early in the season, even before all the snow had melted by spring sunshine, he, the shepherd, will go ahead and make preliminary survey trips into this rough, wild country. He will look it over with great care, keeping ever in mind its best use for his flock during the coming season. A good shepherd actually searches out the place he's going to take his sheep. The best place, he prepares the way for them. A place where he might have full view of any oncoming enemies. Remember David who wrote this, who was a shepherd, and he said uh, he said at one point in his life, I uh, killed the lion and the bear in protection of his sheep. Well, a shepherd will situate himself and, and his flock in a place where he can actually see the enemies that might be coming their direction. He prepares, he looks for dangers as he goes ahead of his sheep and scouts out the land. He looks to see if there might be plants that are poisonous, because we've already established that sheep may Maybe they aren't the smartest, and maybe they might eat something that they shouldn't. And he looks for um, rough and rocky terrain where they might stumble and fall, because we learned if a sheep falls on his or her back, they can't get back up again. And um, he also searches out good places of water as he searches for safe places and places for food and sustenance. There was a time written in the book of Deuteronomy where God was speaking about his place in the lives of his people. And he said, the Lord himself goes before you and will be with you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. We have a good shepherd who continually goes before us. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. So he goes before us. He prepares a table for us. It's actually in the presence of potential enemies. David was well aware of enemies to sheep, the lion and the bear. He was also aware of his enemies as a king with a kingdom, from other nations that would come against him in a physical sense to even his own son as his family broke down. David also, as you read the Psalms, was really, um, how do we say it? He saw man's proclivity to sin as that which could be a, a, an enemy to our very well-being. David, as he wrote, was aware of enemies. And yet he knew that the good shepherd went before us and prepared a way for us, even in the midst, even in the challenges that life brings God sees and he's gone before you. And so it got me thinking, so who are my enemies? And uh, Richard has taken us here a couple of times in this series where he started out with that first verse where we love to read and say, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. But when we honestly look inside, we can often identify something else. We can often identify uh, yeah, but sometimes money is my shepherd. Money's the thing I look for. 
so I will not want, or a relationship, a husband, a wife, a boyfriend, or um, youth, or beauty, or approval. And so this is a reflective psalm where we can look and say, yes, he prepares a table for me. He gives me a way in the midst of enemies, but I gotta be honest about what those enemies to my own soul is. Paul, writing to the Corinthians, reminds us of God's provision and protection for us. He wrote this, no temptation, or some versions say test or trial, has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Do you see the good shepherd in that? That he actually sees down the path and provides for us a way of escape. Well, how else does God sustain us? God sustains us with oil. Now, let's go back to the shepherd for a minute here. So there are assorted um, flies and insects and bugs that are particularly bothersome to sheep. Uh, and sometimes even life-threatening. There are certain parasites that will make their way up the nose of the sheep and actually burrow in its brain, but that's enough about that. Um, so even to this day, shepherds will make a mixture of oil and other things. Some things I read about were things like sulfur. And they'll put that over the head of the sheep, and it'll actually be a place of protection from things that would potentially be enemies to the sheep. And what did the psalmist say? You, God, my shepherd, anoint me with oil as a protection, like a sheep in the presence of my enemies. So there's the oil, the physical oil that would protect the sheep. But, you know, oil in scripture has a significant place. And I just thought of three different examples um, where oil played an uh, amazing, interesting part in people's lives. The first one was David himself. And I'm sure David, even as he penned this, remembered back to that time when he was a, a young teenage shepherd boy and Samuel knew that the next king was going to come from David's family. Jesse was his dad and he had a bunch of brothers and, and, uh, David was the youngest and they didn't think he'd be the one, but lo and behold, this was the one God had his eye on to become king of Israel. And so the scripture tells us that Samuel, took a horn of oil. I don't know how much oil that is, but it seems like a significant amount. And he anointed David with it. He anointed David as king. There's another um, reference in scripture to this oil, this oil of anointing, where um, in the days of Moses, Moses was leading God's people out of Egypt, and they were journeying to the land that God had promised them. And Moses' brother was walking hand in hand with him. And Moses' brother and his sons were actually going to be the priests, the religious leaders for the people of Israel. And God gave Moses some pretty um, clear instructions on how to anoint his brother Aaron and his nephews, the sons, to be priests of Israel. Later, David in the Psalms reflects on this in Psalm 133, and he talks about the oil on Aaron's head, and he says it like float over his head and onto his beard and down onto his garment. A significant amount of oil 
was poured on the head as a sign of God's call and of his anointing. So here's a third one, and that's Jesus. You know, not long before Jesus went to the cross towards the end of his life, recorded in all four Gospels was the story of a woman, and she was a woman with kind of a a, a messy past, and she came with what what they say was an alabaster flask of oil. And she poured that oil over Jesus. And ah, some people scoffed and Jesus said, uh, 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 she's going to be remembered forever because she has anointed me for my burial. What does it mean to be anointed? Well, it's to be set apart. It's to be, uh, Sanctified is a word we use. It's to be called. It's it's to acknowledge that there's a purpose for something in, in our lives. So David, he was anointed to be king, and Aaron and his sons were anointed to be priests, and actually Jesus was anointed to fulfill his call, part of his call, which was his burial, his death. And Samuel had a horn of oil and and uh, Aaron's oil flowed down his beard, and um, I don't know how big that alabaster flask was, but even that that picture of the oil is a picture of abundance. It's 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 not a um, you know sometimes we'll pray for people with oil and we put a little dab on their forehead. No no no, this was like the pouring of oil over someone to signify to signify that. God actually had a plan and a purpose for them. And that plan and that purpose actually sustained them through what God had ahead of them. He sustains us with oil. He sustains us with the purpose for our lives. Have you ever heard the story of a man named Eric Little? So, Eric Little was born in 1902 in China. um, His parents were Scottish missionaries. And uh, he was born in China. But then he was sent, as most kids were in those days, missionary kids. He was sent to London to go to school. And he did his university studies there. And Eric Little was an outstanding athlete. He played rugby and cricket. And he also ran track and field. In 1981, a movie was released. So if you're my age, you've probably seen the movie more than once. If you're not my age and I played the music for you, for you, you would go, oh, I've heard that before, the theme song. But here was the movie. It was based on a part of the life of Eric Little. He actually, um, it's the, the story of, focuses on two athletes competing in the 1924 Olympics in Paris in They were runners. So one of those was Eric Little. The other was a man named Harold Abramson. And part of kind of one of the pinnacle part of this story was that um, one of the heats, the races, was the 100 meter. And Eric Little, because of his Christian conviction, pulled from that event, which was his best event, because the heats were being held on Sunday. One of the memorable parts in the movie um, was a conversation that Eric had with his sister, Jenny. So here he is, he's trained and he's prepared and he's at the Olympics. And then 
because of his, you know, his conscience, he pulls from this one race and he's going to race in another one. And I'll give you kind of the end of the story. He does win gold in the 400 meters, but that's not what we're talking about today. So one of the memorable things in this, um, in the movie, we don't know what was said in real life, but in the movie, Eric is having a conversation with his sister, Jenny. Let me read this to you. I've decided I'm going back to China. And his sister, you can see her getting excited. The missionary service has accepted me. But I've got a lot of running to do first. He says to his sister, her, her heart, you can see physically her heart sinks. And he goes, Jenny, Jenny, you've got to understand. And here's the part. I believe that God made me with a purpose for China. I believe I believe God made me for a purpose for China, but he also made me fast. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. God made me for a purpose for China, but also when I run, I feel his presence. He went on to say, to give that up would be to hold him in contempt. To win is to honor him. So the movie, the story goes on. But in real life, in 1925, Eric Little actually went back to China. And uh, he served there for lots of years. And um, But by 1943, the, the climate in China had changed. And Eric, along with other missionaries and um, other educated people, foreigners in the land, were put in internment camps. And uh, he continued in the this camp, he continued to live his life with a purpose. It says he served unselfishly. He helped the elderly. He taught Bible classes. He arranged games for the kids. He taught the children. While virtually everyone else struggled with crushing despair, exploitation, little remained a constant source of life, of light, of relief, and generosity. Remember, the guy who said, God created me for a purpose. Even in the this internment camp, he didn't lose that sight of that God had a purpose for him, even in a dark place. A fellow internee, a man by the name of Langdon Gilkey, I'm pretty sure he was an American, was in this camp with him. At the time, he was a humanist. He was not a believer. Years later, he came to faith, and he wrote a book, a memoir of his time. And here's what he said about Eric Little. It is rare indeed when a person has the good fortune to meet a saint. But he came as close to it as anyone I have ever known. Little was especially concerned to minister to the teenagers of the camp. He cooked for them and supervised recreation for them and poured himself out for them. More than anyone else there, he was overflowing with humor, love of life, sacrificial kindness for others, and inward peace. So for Eric Little, whether he was running track, whether he was serving in China, or whether he was living in an internment camp. He knew God had created him in a certain way for a certain purpose to bring glory and pleasure to God. 
I believe that sense of call, that uh, using the analogy from the psalm, that anointing with oil, that being set apart for something in his life sustained Eric Little. He later died in the in the camp about five months before liberation. And um, one day read, watch the movie and read the story because I think it's inspirational. It would be for you and I. But you might not be called to be a king or a missionary or a priest. And uh, we're not like Jesus where we were being anointed for a really significant burial. But each one of us is created with a purpose. And when the psalmist wrote that he um, he anoints my head with oil, he anoints my head and your head with oil, with that purpose and plan and call for our lives. Have you found it? Is there a place where you're living out your God-given purpose where you feel his pleasure? Paul in his letter to the Ephesians, kind of he he um he was kind of dealing with the same thing. He first talks about our salvation. He says and reminds us that by grace you have been saved through faith. This isn't your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So he's talking about our salvation, but then he goes on to how we are crafted. He says, We are his workmanship. We're created in Christ Jesus for good works which God, read the shepherd in here, the good shepherd, prepared, remember, went ahead of us, prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So each one of us, you and I can say, I am his workmanship. I have been created for good works. I have been, God has prepared something ahead of time for me to do. And I can look for that thing and those places where I'm supposed to be, whether it's my career, whether it's my relationships, whether it's my service to the world. Um, each one of us can say, he's anointed my head with oil. I was thinking about um, the first time I ever actually preached. Bert and I had started our Every Nation Church in Calgary way back in the 90s and I took a shot at preaching one Sunday, and uh, that probably wasn't all that good. Don't worry. I, I You don't need to worry. I'm really glad it was probably never recorded. Um, oh, my sound guy named Bert just said it was recorded. Well, I talked about um, the world being at our doorstep and what it meant like, meant in, in Canada, even at that time, that God was bringing so many immigrants and international students to our country. So I preached about this. As I said, it was probably a little hit and miss. It was my first time through. But I remember when I finished speaking that day, I felt something inside of me that said, this might have been my first, but it probably wasn't going to be my last. That there was a part of my purpose in in God, what Christ had prepared for me that was going to have something to do at some places and times with me actually speaking about my life and what the Bible says. And look, here I am today. And yours might be different. But each of us, I think, has that sense of purpose and needs to pursue that sense of purpose. And you know, it's some of that sense of calling and his oil upon us or his uh, his place for us within building his kingdom that actually sustains us. It keeps us going. You know, there's times when you think, how do I put one foot in front of the other? I think motherhood was probably the 
greatest picture of that because it didn't matter how I felt. If that baby cried, I had to get out of bed. So uh, I think our purpose, I know our purpose, it sustains us, that oil on our heads. Finally, um, he sustains us with a cup. Now, the cup. The cup. Uh, the cup isn't just a, a, a ordinary, everyday cup. It's actually a cup that overflows. It's not just filled like up to the tip, but it is overflowing in our lives. And a cup might be the abundant life that Jesus had for us, or it might be that joy to the fullest, you know, that Jesus described that he wanted to give us, that 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 life that comes out of us, the, the rivers of living water. Jesus described at one point that we're going to flow from us to eternal life as his spirit came and dwelt within us. It's not any old cup. It's a really full cup. A picture again, that oil being poured over our head, not just a little drip, but that horn of oil from Samuel or running down the beard or that flask. And what did Jesus tell us? Two places in the book of John about this life, this cup, this abundance he has for us. He said in John 10, 10, I came that they, that's you and me, might have life and have it abundantly. And he said, these things I've spoken to you, a lot of things he spoke to us. Why? That my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Finally, in my last minute or so here today, I, you know, there was another table and, and there was another cup and this table and this cup actually bring us the confidence that what David wrote in Psalm 23 is true for you and I today. Matthew 26 tells us that the day before, the night before the crucifixion, Jesus actually reclined at a table. And that table had been prepared. And there were those physical things where we can see the bread and the cup that were going to show us something and display something to us. And Jesus took that bread and he broke it. His 12 uh, disciples were there with him. And he said, look at this bread. And from here on in, every time you look at this bread, this is what I want you to remember, that at this table, this bread broken for you was going to be symbolic of what was about to happen. My body that would be broken for you. And he took a cup and he shared this cup of wine with his disciples. But he said, this is a cup and this is wine. But here's what I want you to remember. That this cup is the new covenant, the new promise that God has in a cup. And uh, that this was going to be the shedding that following day of Jesus' very blood to cover us and to wash us and to take away the sins of the world. And later that night, there was one more reference to a cup because after they took supper together, then they went to a garden called Gethsemane and Jesus started talking about a cup. And some call it the cup of God's wrath. And Jesus said, if there's any way, take this cup away from me. But you know, he he drank that cup. He Wore that cup. He took upon himself in the next few hours the sins of the world, mine and yours. He took that upon him himself. And so that table, that bread, and that cup, that wine, and even the cup that Jesus chose to take upon himself reminds us and brings us back to the point where we can say, like the psalmist, you prepare a table before me in the presence of mine enemies.
You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. And Jesus said to us, I, he said, I am that good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Amen. You've been listening to a message from Every Nation GTA. Thanks for joining us. For more information, visit our website at everynationgta.org.